Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm Director of ECFR. And this week we will talk about transatlantic relations. We had already recorded most of this conversation before the French President Emmanuel Macron and the President of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, decided to go to China in what was supposed to be a demonstration of European and Western unity vis-à-vis Beijing. But instead, in comments that Macron made on the last day of the visit, where he questioned the nature of Europe's commitment to Taiwan, as well as warning Europe not to become a US vassal, managed to generate a huge brouhaha on both sides of the Atlantic and raised lots of questions about the nature of the transatlantic alliance and the idea of European sovereignty. Although the war in Ukraine has brought Europe and the US closer than they've been in a long time, it's also allowed both sides to fall back into old patterns of behavior, with the US dictating a lot of the terms of the relationship, making most of the strategic decisions for the Western alliance, and Europeans having to show their loyalty to Washington as much as their ability to think for themselves. So what do Macron's comments say about the state of the transatlantic alliance? How unusual are they for a president of uh, of France? These are big questions that we uh, will talk about in our special podcast next week. But this week, we are going to focus on this whole question about Europe's relationship with America and whether it is becoming a a vassal again. And to help me make sense of that, we have an all-star cast who have written a wonderful policy brief that delves deep into these subjects. First up, we have Jeremy Shapiro, who is ECFR's research director, as well as one of the co-authors of this paper. And second up, also joining me from here in Berlin, is Jana Pulierin, who is the head of our Berlin office and a senior policy fellow at ECFR. As I said earlier, most of the conversation took place before the Macron visit, but we will touch on it at the very end of this podcast and go into much greater depth on the controversies that it raised in our podcast next week. Jeremy, Jana, thanks so much for joining. Thanks for having us. It's good to be back. (laughs) Why don't we get straight into it? You've come up with this new term for, for the next phase of the transatlantic relations. We've heard about westlessness and all sorts of other kind of um, periods in the transatlantic relationship. But but we're now uh, talking about the art of vassalization. Do, does one of you want to explain what that means? Sure. Well, I mean, in the first instance, we needed, we needed our own term um, because you can't really have a paper without a term. Um, but more importantly, I suppose, what vassalization is trying to get at is that there is a process a voluntary or willful process of trying to subordinate European strategic thinking to the United States. And so it is a process of becoming a vassal, but the vassalization implies that it's Europeans themselves to a large, to probably to a greater degree, even than Americans that are pushing in that direction. Yeah. And that there are European governments that kind of really look at the United States first and foremost, and only move once the United States uh, moves. And I think that has become crystal clear in the past year when we look at uh, Russia's war in Ukraine, 
I think it's fair to say that without the United States, uh, Ukraine would no longer exist as a sovereign country. But also when you look at, for example, my country, Germany, and you look at the chancellor um, and his actions, I mean, I mean, he made most of them dependent on yeah, decisions that were taken in the White House. He always said, I don't want to go it alone. And initially, I think people did not understand that in reality, this means I don't want to go without Joe Biden or without uh, being in lockstep, really, with Joe Biden. So that's seems like a pretty accurate description of at least 40, 50 years of transatlantic relations. What's new about this present period of vassalization? Well, I think it's a pretty accurate description of the Cold War. Um, I think in the post-Cold War period, uh, particularly in the la- uh, in, during the Trump period and in the few years leading up to it, there had been this movement away from this type of thing that the the, the Lisbon Treaty, which was signed, which went into force in 2009, was intended to create a European foreign security policy. And there had been various efforts, I think, which hadn't really amounted to too much, to be fair. But I think it was at least the direction that they were going in. And of course, a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, uh, in the first instance, the United States seemed to be moving uh, to foreign policy, seemed to be moving toward Asia. And in the second case, in the second instance, Donald Trump was president, and he hated he hated NATO, and he hated allies, and he particularly hated Germany. Um, so there was a so there was a movement away from all of this stuff, aided and abetted by the United States and the Ukraine war. That to be fair, that trend hadn't gotten very far. So your point is well taken. Um, Although we dedicated uh, a lot of time to develop kind of European sovereignty and develop all sorts of plans and ideas how Europeans could step up. But I think more importantly, the Ukraine war, the the American reaction to it and the European reaction to the American reaction has totally reversed that trend. But but can I I add something? Because what I think is even more astonishing is not only that we have forgotten the Trump years um, and um, that we kind of tend to neglect the idea that Trump might return, but it's also that we kind of have forgotten about the um, beginning of the Biden administration. Uh, In summer 2021, um, Europe was in uproar because of the um, Afghanistan withdrawal. We weren't able as Europeans to evacuate our own people from Kabul airport. And then uh, we had the whole uh, AUKUS saga. And all that was a clear indication that the Biden administration was headed elsewhere, um, that their strategic priority was in the Indo-Pacific. And now, kind of uh, in, in the kind of present, I think many European countries have forgotten uh, about all of that and tend to believe that the Biden administration will be there forever. So that's a very good point. And I think we should, we should look at uh, that um, a bit later on. But before we do that, be quite good just to get a little bit more evidence as to what you mean by this new kind of vassalization. So, Jana, you mentioned one point, which was the German chancellor was not happy about sending leopard tanks to Ukraine without having got the Americans to travel along and send their own um, uh, uh, tanks to, to, to Ukraine. So that was one powerful example of that. Can you give us some more examples of, of this new... Um, trend towards vassalization? I think when you look at um, many countries in Central and Eastern Europe, um, they are also willfully uh, kind of uh, outsourcing strategic decisions to Washington. I mean, to be fair, 
many of those administrations, even under Trump, have never taken another course. They were, well, the Poles were going to build Fort Trump. Yeah, they were very skeptical <laughs> uh, about the idea of strategic autonomy. Uh, or they, they, were, they were early vassalizers. <laughs> they haven't built Fort Biden yet, though. But the thing is, another example would be um, that when you look at the huge amounts of new money that are now um, available in Europe for a defense, when you look at not only the German side and then, so but also yeah, but world. also the um, again the Poles, but also by and large many European countries putting more money to the table, um, wanting to get more capable armies, which uh, is absolutely. Um, uh, kind of uh, the right direction, but what they do now, the Germans, the Poles, or the Romanians, is um, because they want to fill the military gaps quickly, um, they buy off the shelf, functioning uh, material off the shelf, uh, and that tends to be made in the United States or in Israel. What they don't or do, Korea, or Korea, South Korea, but what they don't do enough, I mean, if you ask me, uh, is um, they don't invest enough in. Uh, the build-up of a European defense industrial base um, and in kind of investing in new technologies um, in Europe, uh, streamlining uh, the European processes much more. Because I think that if you want to kind of make all this sustainable, kind of the, the, kind of the, the more capable uh, European armies and the high, higher defense spending in Europe, I think you need to show citizens uh, some bang for the buck. You need to... Okay. Yeah. And does this go beyond the, the military security realm, for their example? Because, I mean, some people also look at what's happened with the, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, where initially there was talk about Europeans pushing back in an aggressive way against that. But the European Commission seems to have, uh, have encouraged Europeans instead to just get into a subsidy race and, and uh, supplement American subsidies with with European ones. Yeah, we, we talk about that in the paper. You know, a really funny thing happened on the way to the passage of the IRA, which is like the most significant piece of climate legislation in American history. Nobody seems to have considered the effect on Europe. The Americans um, really never talked about it, even within the administration. I asked some administration officials about it. They were like, oh, never really come up. And that extended even to the Europeans, which nev who never, even though it took 18 months to pass this legislation, they never um, attempted to influence the process at all. The Canadians, by the way, jumped into the process, received uh, various exemptions. Um, the Europeans never did so. After the, after the bill passed, there was all sorts of upset and gnashing of teeth in Europe. Um, the Biden administration sort of engaged in what, what I've started to call ex-post coordination, which is, which is sort of what you do with vassals. And instead of asking for permission, you ask for forgiveness and then do it anyway. So that's so. Those are some more examples of self-vassalization. I want to talk a bit more about about actual vassalization and whether the Americans are leaning into this or whether it's just Europeans choosing to to do this. But I suppose one other example would be the Dutch government that decided that ASML, its big semiconductor organization, would not be allowed to to trade with China the, under the American pressure. German decision on Huawei is another. Well, you could make the the point that this is also in our interest. So the interest. recent German decision on <laughs> Huawei was to, to rip out and replace Huawei 5G infrastructure. Uh, it could be, you could make the argument that it was in German interest. It's just that the Germans two years ago didn't think it was. 
But maybe uh, that's also, yeah, I think that is also a process <laughs> of waking up to the threats where Germany has been terribly behind, but for kind of some years now, there is some sort of awakening, slowly, slowly, but I think, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I, it's, it can be very good at believing what, what your liege tells you to believe. No, but, but there is there is maybe a fundamental argument here because what we are not trying to do with this paper is to basically advocate for a, a transatlantic divorce. We're not, we're, let's not talk about what you're... At the moment, we're still in the okay. an analytical phase. So I'm just trying to map out the phenomenon, and okay. then we can get to, to the policy recommendations later. So we've looked at some elements of self-vassalization in different areas, security, defense, but also economic, and then in some of these kind of crossover areas. But obviously, it takes two to, to, to become a vassal, doesn't it? You have the kind of vassal and you have the liege. So to what extent is this something that's happening to America, or is there an actual... American strategy to to revassalize Europe, to get, to turn back the the table on strategic autonomy or European sovereignty. Yeah, I struggle with that a lot. There is a lot of schizophrenia in the American approach. Um, I noticed when I was in the U.S. government that there's a real will to leadership there, like the the sort of the the idea that someone else will you know uh, lead the invasion of Libya or broker an Iranian or an Iran Saudi deal kind of anathema in Washington, just as a sense of their self-image. Um, and Europe is the traditional place where when Americans show up, they get to sit at the head of the table. Everybody tells them how great they are. They, people really like it. And they love, they like that leadership element. And there's a lot of rhetoric about, about and I think some of it is true, about, about what advantages that brings to the United States. But at the same time, there has been, a, a, in general, a recognition in the United States that a, a they can't afford in the struggle with China to, to have their richest, most in theory, most capable partners so dependent on them and contributing so little and that they need a more independent, more capable, they need more independent, more capable partners to step up. I, so I think it's true that the United States both says it wants this, sometimes believes it, and at, the other, at other moments cuts it down. The essence of, of why that where that schizophrenia comes from, I think, is that if you say to an American official in the moment, you know, well, we shouldn't we shouldn't like interfere in this European process because we need to create a more independent partner, they sort of look at you and they say, Well, we're never gonna become independent no matter what we do. So why should we bother with that? And there's a sort of fatalism uh, about this that I think encourages the United States to lean into that side and to and to seek to seek to sustain its leadership, even though it knows it's not the best long-term policy. So I want to come to your policy recommendations quite soon. But um, before we do that, just part of what I'm trying to understand a bit more is um, exactly this question of agency and where it's coming from. Because a kind of cynic might say that, you know, Germany in particular, but other Europeans have been trying to free ride. Their entire foreign defence policy has been about free riding. Um, it's uh, a way of, of enjoying quite a lot of security, stability. You might lose a bit of sovereignty, but you save a lot of money. And um, uh, it's worked very well for the, for the Federal Republic for decades. And, um, you know, why change something which is working quite well for you? And Ukraine looked like it might be a bit of a problem. And then the Americans are willing to come in and fix it. So why not just double down on it rather than uh, carry on? So from that perspective... It might seem actually that this is just Germany, you know, making the Americans feel good 
about them being able to carry on free riding would seem like you know it could be quite a a, a sort of sensible uh, approach from an American perspective. Obviously, there has been a sort of shift in in recent years. I remember, uh, you know, during the Clinton administration and, and Bush one, there was a at best people would politely say there was some ambivalence about the idea of European strategic autonomy and defence. But that seemed to go somewhere in the Obama administration. And certainly, Trump was not that bothered about it, so long as uh, particularly so long as it meant that if it was compatible with people carrying on buying American kit, that was uh, it was something which was welcome. Americans now, I mean, you know, what exactly is sort of going on here? Is this sort of just a new attempt to free ride or is this a kind of different type of relationship which which people are trying to build? And from an American perspective, you know, how, how is this, where is this kind of ambivalent sort of feeling going to land, do you think? <laughs> no, I wanted to go back to right, the back. Uh, beginning of Mark's very, very long <laughs> question uh, when yeah. you asked, why don't we just accept it and see it as a privilege for Europeans to, uh, yeah, to be able to free ride? And I would give you two arguments why I think this is not sustainable. The first is because I think Ukraine can be uh, some sort of trap. Um, it creates the impression that the United States is back uh, in its old role, Cold War style, fully committed, ready to pay the burden uh, and just uh, letting the Europeans free ride. And I think this is a mistake. You see that already in the United States uh, internal debate, gaining kind of in, in relevance and speed uh, the more uh, the, the next election approaches. Um, because I think many Republicans argue, well, these Europeans are free riding and why should our taxpayers pay for their security? So I think there is a lot of opposition already in the United States, especially in the Republican camp, but maybe also increasingly within the Democrats. This is the first thing. So this is like a sleeping pill for us Europeans. Uh, we like to swallow it and think everything is fine and go to sleep again. And I think this is a real danger because we might wake up in 2024 and there is the next American president. Uh, having completely different plans for Europe and the world. First um, argument. And the second is, especially uh, Germany liked to comp compartmentalize a lot. So we were really happy to let our security uh, be guaranteed by the United States to buy cheap energy from Russia and to uh, export and, and, and kind of with China and see them as basically a cheap labor uh, organization. And I think what we've learned uh, throughout the war is that this model is outdated and that um, even a Biden administration in the future might see things differently and more transactional. So that with uh, a lot of dependence uh, in the security field, there comes a lot of uh, responsibility or a lot of uh, well, can I, can I to, to comply in other areas, like, for example, uh, on, on China. On China. But, yeah. yeah, but this is something which I don't quite understand, though, because basically the U.S. is not defending Ukraine as a favor to the Germans. They're defending Ukraine because they want to maintain... Why are they defending Well, I don't know. You can explain <laughs> it to me, but it's definitely not as a favor to the Germans. I think it's because they it want to maintain an American sphere of influence. It is in, to sustain the capacity of NATO uh, and to make sure that they have deterrence. They, they specifically decided early in the Biden administration, and this was true of the later Obama administration and certainly of the Trump administration, that they, they didn't really want leadership in Europe because they had a big China problem in the Far East and they wanted to deal with that. And what they wanted was the Europeans to stand up and to be able to handle that problem and or, and or to compartmentalize yeah. the so Russia other problem. Other things being equal, 
Europeans would defend themselves. But in the absence of Europeans defending themselves, the choice which a, which an American administration has yeah. is let Russia have Ukraine or push back and defend Ukraine. And for right. whatever reasons, they've decided that American strategic interests are better served by not letting yeah, Russia time, have Ukraine. This time, but, but I was sitting next to a Republican okay. arguing that Ukraine was no vital sure. interest Listen, to I'm the not, United States. I'm not, I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but I'm simply saying, I think, first of all, you know, cards on the table. I think it's a terrible idea to assume that the Biden administration will last forever and that American interest in Ukraine security and other things will last forever. And I think Europeans should take more responsibility and should... So I'm not arguing against that, but I'm still Good, not... because I think I learned that from you. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm still not entirely clear why Germans would think that the US is in a position to exact conditionality on German economic relations with China through its military support for Ukraine. Because I think that the US is doing what it's doing out of a calculation of its own interests, I don't think that they're done in order to buy German vassalization no, on, on China. No one is debating no, that. No, no. So therefore, it should be presumably as easy for uh, Germany to enjoy the American policy on Ukraine and to do what it wants on China as it is for Israel to enjoy um, American support on its security the, the, and not to help it on China. Why is it more difficult for Germany to well, do the that? Well, the evidence seems Israel? to be that they're not able to do it. But that's why I'm um, trying to understand. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, I think because the they feel that the United States has been quite successful at leveraging these security relationships in recent years into the economic areas. But not in Saudi uh, Arabia or Israel, for example. So why should it be more successful? Well, I think Europe? that um, because in, in Europe, which is, uh, we covered this in the in the Transatlantic Power Audit that we did together a few years ago, that that um, the United States has, uh, at, the count, at that time... 14 special relationships with the 27 uh, EU countries. They are really able to find pressure points within the European Union for um, re realizing these things and for, and for leveraging their security, and increasingly willing to do it. It's not something they did during the Cold War, leveraging their security relationships for uh, economic gains. And, and one of the reasons that they're doing this is not just to have economic gains, but also because when they look at, from a U.S. perspective, when you look at the struggle with China, this is, this is a, not the same as the struggle with the Soviet Union. It is, an, it is a technological and economic race, almost more than a military race. And, what, and that means that pretty much every issue from a U.S. perspective with China becomes immediately securitized. And therefore, they are willing to put on the table their security relationships and are willing to say, to Europeans, look, you have to do this um, because otherwise um, we as a security provider won't, uh, won't be able to provide security. And I think that this is, you know, it's true. This isn't an argument that works with the Israelis. So there's a way not to do it. But um, if you go to Poland or Romania, they do not have this perspective. Their perspective is that U.S. Uh, devotion to them is, you know, solid but always a little bit scary and they are not going to anger Uncle Sam and they will bring that into the Brussels arena if they have to. And for me, it's not about the present so much and about Biden administration. It's really also about the future because I think you could well argue that Biden is the last transatlanticist standing. I mean, besides us here in the room, of course, but um, as, as an American president, I think he's very old school in a certain way. He has a very um, 
clear idea about the value of the transatlantic relationship. And I just think that might be an outdated model uh, when it comes to next uh, US president. So if I recall correctly, um, Donald Trump was well able to stop us Europeans to trade with Iran and to save the JCPOA. Um, I would say um, kind of to the extent that we were really kind of unable to, to do anything significant, even though the Europeans really wanted uh, to, to save the JCPOA and wanted to continue to trade with Iran and even came up with this instrument called INSTEX, which then kind of was basically useless or, or did not really make uh, any difference because... But just to, to, if you want to follow that argument to its conclusion, though, because it was willing to sanction all American entities from doing trade with Iran, but, you know, you'd have to stop Apple... American entity. It's because mm -hmm. it was the dollar. Nobody who used the dollar was allowed to trade with Iran. But in order for the US to stop Europeans trading with China, they would have to stop trading with China. So Apple would no longer be able to make all of its iPhones in China. None of these but big American companies. Why are you saying these things as theoretical questions? We, 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 have, we already, they have stopped them from trading with Huawei. They don't want to. Already they have stopped the Dutch ASML from from trading. This is I, you. You can ask yourself why it's working, but I'm, it is working. I'm not asking myself. I'm asking you. So I'm. I'm. I was just wondering why you think um, some countries like Saudi Arabia and Israel are able to have a very close security relationship. Some would say even dependence on on the U.S. and yet to not be particularly helpful that, either with Russia or with China. I, I think that the um, the you know, there's a sort of a long history of U.S. having or losing leverage with their allies. One of the fundamental features of what gives allies leverage is how important the strategic problem is to the United States. Um, the, the issue, uh, and so for a long time, the Middle East was quite central, and therefore uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel had quite a lot of leverage. Uh, recently, of course, particularly in the case of Saudi Arabia, that the Middle East has become less central and Saudi Arabia has lost a lot of leverage and therefore is very angry with the United States. Uh, and in the, re the relationship seems to, to some degree, be breaking down. And the United States doesn't really seem to care all that much, although they're a little bit upset about the oil price. Israel is similarly having greater troubles influencing. Israel often used U.S. domestic politics, which is a very particular route. Um, but is having similar troubles influencing them. Yes, if Russia remains uh, uh, the sort of central security uh, orientation of the United States, then this is a very viable policy okay. for Europeans. But right. it's, we but just believe. I think we all agree. I think we all agree that that is unlikely to be the central foreign policy problem. Okay, so we 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 I spent a lot of time um, pushing you to give me more analysis <laughs> on what's going on, but you had lots of ideas about what we should do um, based on what I think seems to be emerging, which is an analysis that Russia isn't going to be the central thing, that Biden will not necessarily last forever, and that you might therefore have both uh, a US that's less interested in the same, it, it, the shares less interested with Europeans, and secondly, is more willing to, to put pressure by leveraging the security dependency on, on Europeans. So what should Europeans do about it? What do you recommend in your view? So maybe just as a start, as I tried to mention earlier, uh, Jeremy and I are not advocating for a transatlantic divorce. Um, it might have sound like this in this podcast, but <laughs> we basically still think um, that the transatlantic relationship makes sense for both sides. But 
we think it should be on a more equal footing. Um, it should be more balanced. Um, and it should not be about uh, willful vassalization or forced vassalization. Uh, it should be a choice. And um, it, it should give both partners the ability yeah, to, to, to make choices and not to, to be completely dependent. So in order to do this, um, I think one of the basic things would be for the Europeans really to become more militarily capable. I mean, that's, I think, an old request that the United States has towards Europe for a long time. Um, I think it's entirely in the European interest um, to be able to do more um, together with the United States as a more powerful actor, but also if the United States is distracted um, and we need to act alone, um, I think it's necessary that we are able um, to do this. So that's that's number one. That's number okay. one. Jeremy, what else do you have on on the table? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, in the first instance, we think that the Ukraine war is a sort of central test, and it is um, it is very uh, it really promotes vassalization to have the United States leading the response uh, to a war in Europe's backyard. So what I think the first thing we'd like them to do is to uh, develop an independent capacity to support Ukraine in the what appears to be the, a long war. And um, I, along with uh, three of my ECFR colleagues, Gustave Kressel, Marie Dumoulin, and Piotr Boras, uh, released a paper on this in the September, I think that was. Um, Survive and Thrive. Survive and Thrive, right. Um, but we've also done a lot of development since then. And actually, there's, there's a fair amount of European proposals on the... Uh, around for this. And the idea is that they need to create uh, a capacity to uh, feed enough military equipment, feed enough advisors, feed enough training, and do it in, in a coordinated enough fashion through the EU or through an EU-UK uh, collaboration to be able to take on an independent leadership responsibility and to be able to have an independent capacity to support Ukraine. Of course, the United States would would undoubtedly participate in that in very important ways, but it, the theory is that it wouldn't lead it. Okay. Another another idea is um, that there is a significant lack of trust in Europe that is also very present in our paper, that um, some uh, European countries might not trust the United States, but don't trust each other even less. Um, and we argue that uh, Europeans need to overcome this. And in order to do so, Western European countries need to deploy more forces to the east to deter Russia and to protect basically uh, NATO's eastern flank. Um, and also to have the United States back because the United States might want to withdraw uh, some of the troops present in Europe uh, to other theaters, and so that the Europeans basically are able to, yeah, to provide for their own security much more. Um, Nate Whitney called that for Charlemagne instead of for Trump. Exactly. <laughs> um, all, of, all of our thinking really ultimately comes from Nick Whitney. <laughs> yeah, so, and coming, talking uh, about Nick Whitney, we also argue for a better see? EU-UK defense relationship. No, we want the EU to be more open security to, path to, yeah, to, Europe, to the, to the uh, UK to the and the UK and to be more open okay. for the EU. Okay, and then if I because we we also talk, you also everyone likes talking about NATO, how we all love NATO so much that you want to extend it. 
beyond the military sphere. Yeah, technically, <laughs> I don't want to expend it beyond the military sphere. What I want, what we want to do, is to create a sort of similar kind of forum in the geoeconomic realm, uh, where the the U.S., the European, EU member states, and the U.K. can get together and discuss geoeconomic security issues in a way which is more which creates a more balanced uh, relationship and which recognizes that there is this entire realm of policy right now typified by Huawei and the IRA and, uh, and the CHIPS Act and all of that that is focused on using economic tools in geopolitical competition and that, that, mean, and, and, and that those things are fundamentally from a U.S. standpoint and thus from a European standpoint security issues and therefore should be dealt with as security issues. And how does that differ from the TTC, the Trade uh, Transatlantic Trade and Technology Council? Well, the Trade and Technology Council is, uh, is first of all, just an EU-US bilateral thing, but it's also very limited to sort of technical regulatory measures and trade measures to improve the bilateral trade and investment relationship between the US and the EU. And that's obviously really important um, but it's quite a different thing than them getting together and thinking about principally with China in mind, but also with some other countries in mind. How, how is it that we can together, together leverage our economies to, uh, from a regulatory standpoint, from a strategic export control standpoint, from an industrial policy standpoint, from a green transition standpoint, in the competition with China as, so that we can, so that as a transatlantic community, we can be best placed to um, survive and thrive in that competition as well. Okay. Anything else? We're running out of time here, but um, any more well, the last great one ideas? The, the last brilliant <laughs> the idea last one. that we had, it's not, it's not uh, Yana's favorite, so, um, <laughs> so I will mention it, um, which is the idea of having, a, a, at least opening the conversation about a European nuclear deterrent. Uh, Jana is a very security-focused German, but even even for a security-focused German, that's a quite difficult uh, conversation to use the word nuclear in a sentence with <laughs> Germany as the subject. Um, we think that uh, ultimately, in, in the world as it is, you need... Uh, the Sovereignty depends on nuclear weapons. How can you have a sovereign Europe without... To a degree, yeah. Weapons? Yeah, and Macron has offered this conversation to the Germans, and the Germans have pretended not to have listened, which I think is also uh, not a good way to answer to a close ally. And since the relationship is already uh, kind of in a very poor state, we think that to have this dialogue, um, not to exclude the United States from it, but to have a dialogue, kind of the dialogue that Macron has offered would be worthwhile. And probably to include the UK as well. Yes. Great. Okay. Well, anyone who wants to know more about vassalization, about ex-post coordination, about German nuclear weapons. Look no further than the Art of Vassalization, which is available on our website at ecfr.eu. So, Jeremy, since we recorded our discussion with you and Jana, we've had an incredible debate about Emmanuel Macron's remarks about the danger of Europe becoming a vassal. It shows that maybe he had read your policy brief what do you think that tells us about the state of the transatlantic alliance um, and also what the reaction tells us about the idea of, of European unity at this stage? I think in the first instance, it tells us that maybe uh, the president of France has too much time on his hands if he's reading these papers. But perhaps more importantly, um, I think it tells us that 
you know, when you look at Macron's analysis of China, uh, of the idea that the, the Europe perhaps needs a independent policy toward China relative to the United States, I would argue that, in fact, that's an analysis that's broadly shared across Europe, but it's not very broadly talked about. I think it, it, one of the things that this episode shows is that Europeans really don't want to talk about their dependence on the United States. Um, and that uh, and that the difference that people have with Macron's remarks is he, it seems to be about China, but it's actually not about China. It's really about the United States. It's about different strategies that, uh, that different European countries have in dealing with the United States. Uh, France is willing to speak truth to power and willing, uh, or at least Macron is, and willing to stand up and say, well, we need an independent policy. But I think most of the other European countries at this point are, may wish to have one, may even actually um, do some of the things in terms of trade with China that, that the United States doesn't want, but they really aren't willing to challenge the United States in open forum. And, and you can see that the sort of the nature of the reaction is a little bit less you're wrong than, oh, you shouldn't really say that because you'll anger Washington. And indeed, they have angered Washington. So, as Jeremy says, the debate about Macron maybe tells us more about Europe than what Macron actually said. And that's why we want to look into that in a whole new episode, which we'll be doing next week. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. Jana, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? So I am currently reading a book that you have discussed on your podcast, Mark, uh, couple of weeks ago, I'm reading Michael Thumann's uh, Revenge, Revenge. Uh, it's in German, so it's for German um, readers only, but uh, I really enjoy it. It's basically, uh, Thumann tells the story uh, of yeah, German-Russian relations for the past 20 years, uh, and I think he's doing a fabulous job. So it's really readable, a readable book. Um, yeah. Great. And what about you, Jeremy? Um, I just read a book which expresses my sort of morbid obsession with um, brevity, um, which I know will become a surprise to anyone who tries to delve into this paper. Or um, tries to listen to this podcast. Or tries to listen to this podcast. <laughs> but um, if you got this far, maybe you're not that bothered about brevity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you should read Jim Vandehei's, uh Smart Brevity. He's the founder of Axios, which is a relatively new but very successful news organization which really specializes in techniques for writing very clearly and very quickly and very uh, with, with great brevity, I should say. Um, and I'm trying to import these works, these, these techniques into my work, although I have some ways to go and I have an even longer ways to go with my colleagues. I've been uh, sick with COVID for the last couple of weeks, which is why I've now been reduced to recommending Netflix series <laughs> rather than books. The latest one isn't actually available on Netflix, but it's really quite good. And it's called Slow Horses. Which Slow is Horses? Slow Horses, which is uh, a brilliant um, series about British spies um, who have uh, somehow fallen foul of the system. They made some kind of terrible mistake, etc. So they're all kicked out of the normal MI5 thing, made to work in a place called Slough House. And... It's a wonderful TV series starring Gary Oldman, which um, uh, brings to life what these kind of misfits and uh, fuck-ups, in fact, is what they call themselves, 
and get up to in, uh, in, in trying to solve major security threats uh, in the UK. And what's wonderful about it is the, the glorious way in which uh, cock-ups are, are, are much more regular than conspiracies. It has a kind of ring of truth to it and some great acting. And I think that brings this episode to uh, an end. It's been uh, great fun talking to you, Jana and Jeremy. Um, if our listeners have enjoyed listening to us, then you should head to whatever platform you use to download this podcast and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating. As I said earlier, we'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Jana Pulirin, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Anand Sundar, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrell.